just read this morning, chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. Now, a better review again, if you will. In this passage, John resumes the series of seven judgments that are found in chapters 6 to 16 with the seventh seal. Now, this seal contains seven trumpet judgments. Uh, compared to the seal judgments, these seven uh, trumpets display even more parallels with the plagues on Egypt, and we'll see some of those this morning. And so, like those plagues, the trumpets will bring judgments against the world, the world powers that are opposed to Christ and the church. Now, it's one thing you need to recall that the language that we're dealing with in the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic. Now, that means that things are purposely exaggerated for the sake of effect. And so it's not already taken literally, at least not necessarily. Some of it is, but quite a lot is not. Now, the, the main idea, to say it again, is that after a period of apparent inattention to the prayers of believers, seven angels pour out destructive judgments on earth in connection with the sounding of the first four trumpets. And so we come to verses uh, 6 to 7. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, verse 6 sets the stage for the series of the seven trumpet judgments. But the verse comes by way of anticipation. We're to prepare ourselves for what's going to happen next. Now, the first four trumpets affect the natural world, as we call it. And so the earth, the sea, the fresh water, the sky, although they have collateral effects on humans. And the first three trumpets target humans specifically. Well, verse 7 then begins the sequence of the first four trumpets by simply stating that the angel sounded his trumpet. Now, the trumpet blast signals the onslaught of of a supernatural barrage of hail and fire mixed with blood that was thrown upon the earth. Now, the first judgment follows the pattern of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the seven plagues of Egypt, and Ezekiel's visitations, or his visions of the destruction of Jerusalem and the defeat of God, of God in Magog. Now, the earlier Old Testament judgments from God were destructive, to be sure, but they were localized. But the pattern will be intensified in the end time by being more and more widespread. All this mirrors the Old Testament prophetic models as well. It indicates that the final and the greatest judgment is yet to come. And so if things seem to be bad now, John is saying, just wait for a little while and it's going to get a lot worse. Not a, not a very encouraging prospect, is it? But that's what the text says. Now, the phrase mixed with blood comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 30 to 32, which says, And I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so that day is prophesied by Joel, and John picks up on that, and he intensifies even the judgment that Joel had in mind. Now the phrase burned up is used three times in its final clause of verse 7. It carries with it the sense of be consumed by fire or destroyed by burning. 
And the Old Testament parallel from which it is drawn makes it difficult to minimize the catastrophic damage that is to be done. Well, the burning of all the green grass simply adds to the severity of this blow to the earth and its inhabitants. Then verses 8 and 9, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, now here John takes up the second judgment whose effects focus on the sea rather than the earth. The image of a great mountain burning with fire that's cast into the sea is from a variety of Old Testament sources. But Babylon in particular is seen as a fiery, destroying mountain that in turn will be destroyed, as in Jeremiah 51. God uses it to judge Judah, but pledges to, uh, pledges to judge uh, the earth as well, all the world. Now, the pattern of judgments is like that of Egypt. Strongly suggests that the trumpet judgments will be supernatural plagues from God that have horrific effects. Now, the parallel with the parallel with the plagues on Egypt is picked up in verses 8c through 9, where John begins to cite the effects of the phenomena he just described. The water of the sea becomes blood. That mirrors the first plague on Egypt, where the waters of the Nile became blood. I mean, if you've ever uh, seen the movie The Ten Commandments, and I saw it a long time ago, but uh, there's that scene where Pharaoh comes to bless the waters, and yet Moses uh, turns the waters into blood. And uh, that's a very effective uh, visual effect. Well, the, the, uh, the portion of the sea that's affected is a third of the total. Now, that's an immense amount, to be sure, but it's still limited. And so the destruction is not total at this point. Well, that, le that leads to further effects related to sea creatures. And we're told that a third died. And sea trade, a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, it's down in 16.3, we see that the second bowl of judgment increases the severity of the judgment. By turning the sea to blood and causing the death of every living creature in the sea. Now, again, that's apocalyptic uh, exaggeration for the sake of effect. Then verses 10 to 11, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers on, and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died of the water because it was made bitter. Well, now, this third trumpet judgment, mirrors the second quite closely and fills out the, uh, the pattern of the first plague on Egypt. Now, in this case, the object isn't a great fiery mountain, but a great star burning like a torch. Now, here in Revelation, a star can represent an angelic figure, like in chapters 1 and 9, and a great star falling to earth could be related to Satan's rebellion. We read about that in Luke chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 9. However, the parallel of verses uh, 8 to 9 makes this great star more likely an escalation of the destructive objects that rain judgment on Sodom and on Egypt. And so this is biblical history repeating itself. And it does so in terms of the ver various parallel events, especially in Revelation. 
the, the seven episodes, you might call it. Now, we're told that the waters were poisoned. Uh, this contamination is signaled by someone of, uh, uh, by the name of turning, uh, of the turning star Wormwood because a third of the waters became just that, Wormwood. Now, the word Wormwood refers to a shrub that's used in the making of bitter tasting remedies for intestinal problems and other things. And so there's a pretty, uh, pretty tough uh, medicine to take, but uh, it's better than the, uh, than the alternative, say. And so it contains a compound that's safe in lower concentrations, but in higher amounts it can cause fatalities. See, fatal seizures. Well, as so much of the fresh water supplies in contaminated produces disastrous effects for human beings. Now, John records that many people died because of the water. Now, in the added statement, because it became poisonous, literally reads, because it was made bitter or toxic. And so, again, very gruesome sort of scene here. Well, the Old Testament associations for punishment for sin with bitter drink, it often leads to grass, Leads to death, and we found in various passages. Uh, there's Numbers chapter 5, for example, it's having to do with the adulterous wife. And we're told, and the priest will write down these curses in a book and wash them unto the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink of the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause her bitter pain. And it's Deuteronomy 29. Beware lest there be among you, a man or a woman, or family, or a family or tribe, whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of the nations, lest there be among you a root uh, bearing poisonous, bitter fruit. And the letter to the Hebrews uh, reflects on that as well. This is Jeremiah 9. Therefore says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with wormwood, and give them poisonous water to drink. <clears throat> I will scatter them from among the nations who neither the day nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And finally, there's Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 15. Therefore says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. Far from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone forth into all the land. And that brings us to verse 12, which says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, <coughs> and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and a third of the light uh, was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, again, we see here plagues directed toward uh, the natural world, we might call it. In this case, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, the proportion of the judgment is measured in thirds, which indicates a substantial amount, but not a final disruption. And so it's pretty bad, but it's not as bad as it's going to get. Now, this judgment is broadly reminiscent of the ninth plague on Egypt, which helps set the dark, there was darkness over Israel for three days, but it also incorporates details from the day of the Lord that speak of 
the day's darkness and gloom by citing the effects of the sun and the moon. So you have Amos 5, for example. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Now, many apparently in Israel were asking for that to come. Let's have it. Let's have the good part of the day of the Lord. But Amos tells them just the opposite. It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion, and a bear met him, or went into the house, and he leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Now again, that's a, you might call that apocalyptic exaggeration, but even so, it's to make a point. Now, we know from the New Testament this is fulfilled by Christ on the cross when the whole land was dark for several hours. And probably we would not be able to replicate that uh, at the present time, but that's because of the supernatural event taking place. And so the day of the Lord was fulfilled in Christ in that. <coughs> well, these blows result in complete darkness for a third of the daylight and the nighttime. The text says, the day did not shine for a third of it, and the night likewise. <coughs> well, then in verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, as the flew of men heaven, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth, at the blast of the other trumpets, which the three angels were about to blow. Now, in this part of the verse, it's part of the vision, John gives us a transition from the first four trumpet blasts to the final three that are identified as a series of woes. Now, the most prominent thing is what John heard. In other words, he heard an eagle that heralds of distress that's going to accompany the final trumpets. Now, the eagle in Scripture is a common image for swift and overwhelming judgment. We have Deuteronomy 28, for example. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, and from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand. And of course, that literally came to pass in the judgment. In the Jeremiah chapter 4, Behold, he comes like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. How long will your evil thoughts lodge within you? Then you have Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 8, verse 1. Set the trumpet in your lips, for a vulture, which is a variation on the eagle, is over the house of the Lord, because they have broken my covenant and transgressed my law. Now, an eagle flying through the air implies its ability to swoop down on unsuspecting harms. And we see that in real life, it would be not that an eagle swoop down and find its prey. And of course, the eagle has an eagle eye, does it not? It can see from a long way off, at least a mile or so, and pick out an object and destroy it. Well, this eagle gives a loud warning about the intense distress that's going to come soon with the threefold explanation, woe, woe, woe. Now, such woes are also pronounced in the Old Testament once again. <coughs> and so you have uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. 
The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And then we can fast forward to Luke chapter 6. When Christ says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And so you've got it all right now. There's nothing else to look forward to. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall hunger. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you that all men speak well of you, for their fathers did too the false prophets. Well, <clears throat> here the trumpet of men is, is pronounced on all those who live on earth. Now, that's an expression in Revelation that refers to the world as opposed to God, the ones he's going to judge by means of these woes. Well, this threefold scheme, woe, 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 intensifies the emotion of the situation. The trumpet blast by the three remaining angels are the reason for these cries of lament. Now, a couple of applications, maybe three. First of all, the purpose of these first four trumpets is to re reject earthly deities and to show that the Lord alone is on the throne. So by drawing on the Egyptian plagues, God wants uh, to make his, omni his omniscience known to the world and to show the futility of turning against him. Now we know from Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, there is that uh, refrain, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so after you've done everything you can do, after you've seen everything you can see, at the end of the day, everything is vanity of vanities. It's nothing. And so we're to learn from that and to store a treasure in heaven, as it were. <laughs> Each of these judgments addresses a different aspect of life in the ancient world, and I would say the modern as well. These four altogether prove that those who live only for this world have chosen stupidly. And I use that word on purpose. They have chosen stupidly. Because only in the Lord is there authentic life. Earthly things can turn on us, and we have them turn on us. And that's been counted countless times, demonstrated countless times. And so it is, we dare not depend on them, on these earthly things. <clears throat> well, second application is that the prayers of believers are presented as an act of worship, quote, before his throne. It's like the sweet aroma of incense offered to him. You know that from the Old Testament. And God smells the sacrifice and is pleased with it. And so that's a ritual that symbolizes God's attentiveness to all of us who cry out to him for justice and relief. And so he isn't too, too busy to pause and take note of our plight. And although his answer seemed a long time in coming, and we've all had that experience, and we've prayed, and it's been a long, long time before something came. But according to his timetable, he won't neglect our cries. In Luke 16, verses 6 to 9, we have the parable of the unjust judge. And so there's a woman who wanted to be vindicated by this judge, 
And uh, he kept putting her off time after time. Until finally she came again with the same request and so began him. And it wasn't because of his uh, good heartedness, it was because this woman was pestering him to death. He wanted to be rid of her. And the text says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Now again, we have to understand that things are stated in relative terms. But the Lord, when his time comes to act, will do so. And he will do so with vindication and comfort for his people. And so God's will is about to be disclosed and our concern should be to endure in faith and engage with others so that they too can embrace the Son of Man. Revelation tells us of the final outpouring of God's wrath uh, just prior to Christ's return is a deeply wrenching one. In this section of the book, we read about parallel but just judgment interspersed with divine warnings. Those who have any awareness of biblical history should realize that God's inescapable judgment will come at last just as it came against Noah's defiant generation with its Sodom and Gomorrah and undefended Egypt. It's in an evil brings such inevitable disaster and poses the question, why not change our ways? Why not help others to see the dangers around the corner if they stay on that pathway? Why not help them see the good news about a Savior who came to deliver them from their inability to change and from the horror that looms ahead if they refuse them? And so the uh, text again is a rather dark one as a lot of the book of Revelation is. But even so, it does have the bright side because it points us to Christ as the one who is the Savior and Son. Thank you. 